Hello everyone and welcome back to Out of Hours. It's been almost a year since the last episode. Um so yes, thanks for staying. Um the next episodes are so amazing. They are really asking the big questions in life. You know, how can we be more happy? How can we be more brave? How can we be better with our time? And I really hope more than anything else that these episodes help you create something that you care about or help you make the most of the hours you have left on this planet. If you have any questions, comments or thoughts, as always, feel free to email me at hello at outofhours.org and enjoy the show. It's often the thing that's very obvious to you that's completely not obvious to other people. So that's a signal. That's a sign as this might be a zone of genius for me. It's often also something that's so obvious to you that you undervalue. You don't think it has any value. It's like everyone can do this, right? Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of non-profits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. My guest today is Edward Sullivan, executive coach, CEO and avid surfer. During his career, Edward has coached CEOs of major tech companies, including Bombas, Harry's, Hinge and Sweetgreen as well as advising startup founders, Fortune 500 CEOs, and heads of state. Together with John Baird, another highly respected exec coach who has coached the Apple leadership team for many years, he wrote the Wall Street Journal's bestseller, Leading with Heart, where together they reveal the tricks of the best leaders and prove that leading with heart, not fear, has the best results. They also founded Velocity Coaching, where Edward Sullivan is CEO. He leads a team of over 25 coaches, all former operators who have scaled some of the world's most iconic companies. Edward's work has also been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, Fast Company, and more. In this episode, we talk about why leading with heart matters, what makes a great presence, his own journey to exec coaching, what leaders can do to become better leaders, and what makes him feel alive. I hope you enjoy. So we met a year or two ago. One thing that I was very struck by when I met you is that you have a very, you just have a very strong presence. It's very calm. It's very open and it's very commanding. Thank you. So, some people just say I'm a lot. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm curious, do, do people say that to you often? Uh, I do get that a fair amount. I get that I am calming quite a bit, which is interesting because I don't always feel calm myself. You know, like, I think we all have like the internal experience and the external experience. And my internal experience is that I always have a lot on my mind. I have tons of projects I want to be working on. This is the out of hours podcast. We're going to be talking about side projects and stuff. I always have 10 side projects that I 
feel like I should be working on. But when I sit with someone, I invest all of my energy in them and all of my energy in that connection. And they experience that as calming. So that's an intentional thing you've learned or do you think you've always had that skill? I think I've always had a gift for that and it's gotten more intentional as I've received feedback on it and I've cultivated it. I think it's powerful for all of us to feel someone's presence, especially in this day and age when most people are so distracted. You know, like how often do you sit down with a friend and they're like checking their phone or their their Apple watch vibrates and they look down suddenly and like there's all these micro breaks in the connection throughout the conversation such that you actually feel a little bit depleted at the end of the conversation rather than feeling filled up. So I purposefully have no notifications on my phone. I have no Apple watch. I have nothing that would distract me. And I've also trained myself to not be distracted by visual cues. Like I used to be like very distracted by you know, a cute dog walking by or like, you know, a beautiful woman walking by, like whatever it is. Right. And I've now um, decided to be more exquisitely focused. Now, sometimes I'm really focused and sometimes I'm not. Um, But the good news is I'm getting better and better at it. Do you think it's important for coaching to have that presence? Like, do you think you can be a good coach without having that? No, I don't think you can at all. I think at the end of the day, a large part of what a client is paying for is that exquisite focus. And I feel like when I break my focus with a client, uh, I'll actually sometimes stop and say like, I'm sorry, I got distracted there for a second. Can we start, can you start that over? Because if I'm not fully focused and we're not entrained with each other, sometimes our breathing actually becomes like uh, at, at the same pace. Right. And like when we're fully entrained, then we're like connecting at a much deeper level and we're able to do much deeper work. How related is the presence that you've kind of cultivated and grown to meditation and mindfulness? Do you think they're the same thing or do you think there's something else? They're related. They're related. I think, uh, you know, as a younger man, having no mindfulness practice at all, I was very scattered for sure. Very scattered. I think my mindfulness practice has supported um, this ability to stay focused. I think uh, my work, just being a coach and having five to six hours of, of like exquisite focus on one person a day. I think I've, I've like trained myself. It's now like a muscle that is stronger than ever uh, because I do it so much. You're an exec coach and a leadership coach. For those that are listening to this podcast and they're just thinking, oh, a guy who's built a business on coaching like what is that you know there's a lot of skeptics. I know weak sauce right oh, not another <laughs> <Yeah>. coach <laughs> what's your rebuttal if you see the eyes roll or are you kind of like look your time will come when you see the value in this well no I'm with them oh my gosh I'm such a skeptic <laughs> of coaches um and you know you and I were t- speaking uh before we started recording uh I was dragged into coaching actually about 10 years ago, my business school classmates asked me to coach them. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're friends. This is dumb. I'm not a coach. I don't want to be a coach. Coaches are quacks. I run a strategy consulting business. You know, I was very like set in what I was doing and what I was building. And one of my classmates insisted, she said, no, 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 you've been coaching me for years. I've just never paid you. And now I have budget through my company and I want to 
give you little envelopes full of cash. And, um, and I started coaching her. Her name is Julia Oberotman. We're still friends. And I credit her with seeing the gift of coaching inside me. Right. And I actually, um, in building our business, it's called velocity. We've got 30 coaches around the world. Now I prefer to work with coaches who were drafted into coaching, who were kind of, someone said, I think you'd be a great coach and I want you to try this for me. And they probably did it begrudgingly at first. I don't want to say I'm skeptical of other coaches, um, but there are a lot of coaches out there. There are a lot of people who just got to the point in their life, like, "Mm, I give really good relationship advice, or I'm just kind of tired of working every day. And I want to be a digital nomad. So I'm going to become a coach. And some of them are fantastic coaches and some of them don't have the gift. Right. And I'm not here to judge anyone, but I just think that, um, you know, when you sit down with someone and you are uh, thinking of working with them as your coach, you should just be really honest with yourself. Like, does this person get it? Like, does this person have that gift, that exquisite presence? Or is this person kind of running through a, uh, a script? Is this person, you know, using like these like tools they read about online, which a lot of the tools are really important, but they have a place, they have a purpose, and you can overuse the tools, I think. You know, it can feel a bit, um, what's the word, inorganic. You know, it can feel a bit unnatural. And like the best coaches are the ones who just like get into the flow with the client and it all feels very natural and it feels like we're tapping into something much deeper than simply like going through a series of questions. If you had to choose three things that made a coach excellent, what would you say? Hmm. I think the first is that innate ability to be fully present, as you mentioned at the top of the call. Hmm. I think the third thing is uh, just a radical curiosity about people and an openness to being surprised, right? Sometimes coaches come in and be like, it must be this, you know, this is obviously what's going on with you. And that can feel like really like powerful when a coach just like names the thing. Oh my God. Like I feel so seen, but sometimes it's like, actually, that's not the thing. Wait a minute. You rushed to judgment a little too quickly. And like, you're trying to like, you know, a lot of coaches like, I like making people cry in the first 10 minutes of every session. And it's like, well, no, it's not really about that. It's about cultivating a rich relationship that this person feels safe in, you know, as opposed to just like, going to like the root of someone's trauma in the first five minutes. <laughs> I don't know how helpful that is. Right. Um, so, the, so first thing is presence. The second thing is patience and curiosity. And I would say um, <clears throat> the third thing is, I'm just thinking about some of the best coaches, uh, clarity, you know, like the coaches who can very clearly explain or help a client establish clarity around a problem because oftentimes what we're dealing with is 25 different options or mixed messages, mixed signals. I don't know, you know, how to figure, um, discern the signal from the noise right now in my life or in my business. And the best coaches like can get boom right to the grain of it, right? Like this is, I think this is the thing let's, let's dig in there. And, uh, and that can be really powerful for clients. And to your point, not get it wrong. And not get it wrong. If you're sitting there being like, this isn't the thing, it's very yeah. alienating. 
isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it's like you can't rush to getting to the thing, but when you get to the thing, it better be the thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And you mentioned before we started recording that coaching started as a side project for you. It did. So it started, as you mentioned before, with your university friend. But then what was the next step? So, so you do some informal coaching with her. And then do you get a qualification? Do you just continue practicing? My, my journey to coaching was very much like a sidestep, right? Like I was doing a mid-career business degree. Uh, I did the Wharton program out in San Francisco. We were halfway through our program and Julia asked me to coach her. Like we were actually classmates, not even a former classmate. We were in class together. And one day after class, she was like, I think you should coach me. And I thought, this is so weird. But she, she had a good experience. And then she told some other classmates about it. And then I had like five, six classmates all calling me, asking me to coach them. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, I don't do this. I'm a strategy consultant. I do, you know, government relations. I work in politics. I had all of these different ideas of who I was. And I didn't want to be a coach because I knew a friend who went into coaching like five years before. And I thought she was kind of a quack, right? <laughs> it's like, this is so weird. And, um, and by the end of the program, I'd had like six clients within my class and I was coaching leaders at BCG, at Google, at Bechtel, at AECOM, all these like major companies around the world who just happened to be my classmates. Right. And then they started telling people in their businesses and then that just like, it just led to the snowball, um, rolling down a hill such that I had no time to do my other work, which was running this strategy consulting firm, which was tiresome and was, you know, arduous. And like, I was like preparing all these long strategy decks and everything was like a painful pitch and everything about coaching felt easy. And I, I had a, my own coach at the time and I talked to him and I said, what do I do with this? Like all these people are calling me to do this coaching thing. And I know you like it, but I'm not like you, like you're, you're different than me. And he said, well, Edward, sometimes when people call you over and over to do something, that's the definition of your calling. And it was just so, <laughs> so cheeky and so trite, but so spot on. And the other thing was, it was around that time I read about this concept of the zone of genius. Are you familiar with this idea? I interviewed Gay Hendricks, actually. Oh, well, thing. hey, okay. Wow. I, I, I'm humbled to know that I'm on the same podcast as Gay Hendricks. Uh, that's <laughs> incredible. Um, he's a, a, an inspiration of mine, for sure. Um, so the, the, the concept, in, in short, is that we all have four zones of competence with everything in the world. There's the things we're completely incompetent in. Like, I am not a brain surgeon. Don't put a scalpel in my hand. The things we're competent in. I'm a decent bartender, you know. You know, if you got like a, a wedding in your backyard, I can mix some drinks. Uh, I'm an excellent strategy consultant. I'm an excellent political strategist and campaign manager, and all those things I did early in my career. And then it turns out I have this other thing, which is my zone of genius is in coaching. But the thing is, the zone of excellence—that thing you're really good at—that people will pay you a lot of money to do—it often costs you something. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of people stay there. They're like, I went to school for this. I'm trained in this. I work my ass off for this. People pay me for this. And then the zone of genius is the thing that almost feels effortless. You probably didn't go to school for it. The gift probably came from some, you know, tragic story in your childhood, something like that, you know, and it just comes very naturally to you. And you're like, why would anyone pay me 
to do this thing that I have no training in that takes no effort and I could, you know, do in my sleep. But it turns out you're one of the few people who can really, really do that well. And it's the effortless nature of it that makes it so special. You know, like if I were working, if you're working with a coach and every time you had, you said, oh, I want to work on this. Like, okay, let me get up. I've got all these papers. Let me, let me, hold on. I'm going to do some background work on that. And they were putting all this effort in. You would feel like, I don't know how well this person knows their stuff about this. And then they're constantly breaking presence with you. But the coach that just like is fully present can just be there with you, needs no materials, needs nothing else, but to sit with you in this question, that feels like a gifted person, right? So um, all that is to say, it was at that point in, I don't know, 2013, 2014, that I discovered that coaching was my gift. And I had to eventually fire all of my strategy clients and then just like open up shop as a full-time coach. There's so much I want to ask you on things you Let's just go. mentioned. Um, so there's two things I think people are going to be thinking right now. The first is desperately racking their brains for what thing is their zone mm. of genius. You've worked with, you know, thousands, I guess now, tens of thousands. Probably. No, no tens of thousands. thousands. <laughs> I love the coaches like, I've worked with a million leaders around the world. And it's like, wow, <laughs> I don't know about that. Maybe a million people listen to your podcast, but... <laughs> So you must have seen different people being lit up by different things. Are there any themes that you've identified where you're like, again, maybe maybe a better question, you can take it kind of either direction, is if that isn't forthcoming in your brain, like how do you go about finding that? Mm. In terms of how do, you, how do you find your zone of genius? Mm. That, that gift, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a lot of people, their gift is that thing they've been doing for a long time that they're not really aware that they're doing it. So I was not aware that I was coaching my friends, but apparently I'm that guy who's like, huh, let's workshop that. Let's talk about it. Oh my gosh. What have you tried already? Oh, that's interesting. And then where do you feel it in your body? I'm just like all these like geeky coaching questions that were just naturally coming out of me. Um, and you know, and for other people, like their gift is something more subtle, right? It might be, um, I don't know, like I've, I'm just thinking of some people in our company, like um, one of the folks in our company, like her gift is just like um, working, like, like what is her gift? Her gift is like building processes around things that seem overly complicated. She can build like really elegant, simple processes. And, um, and at first, you know, she was just kind of like, yeah, like, oh, maybe we should do it this way and this way. And that, that, that seems a little better. You know, and to her, it's like, it's so obvious. Why would we be doing X, Y, and Z when we could do A, B, C, you know? And the rest of us are like, oh my God, that is so brilliant. We didn't think of that. She's like, what are you guys talking about? How did you not think of that? And like, it's often the thing that's very obvious to you. That's completely not obvious to other people. So that's a signal. That's a sign as this might be a zone of genius for me. Um, it's often also something that, it's so obvious to you that you undervalue it. Yes. Like you don't think it has any value. It's like everyone can do this, right? Everyone can like figure out the simplest, best way to organize this workflow. And the truth is no, businesses are totally chaotic and, you know, filled with bureaucracy because it's not obvious to most people, right? That, that, that simple, elegant through line of we'll do this and then this and then this, and then these workflows come in. And then at the end, you know, we've, we've achieved like, 
50% better throughput on this workflow, workflow. And then I would say the last thing is you've probably done it for a long time and you probably started doing it at some point in childhood. And this is where it gets a little maybe sensitive for people because the gift is often a, an adaptation from childhood. Mm. It's something that you learn to do and you became exquisite at to maybe avoid some pain in childhood or to adapt to whatever situation it is you grew up in. So, um, you know, I've written about this, in the book, and I've talked about this publicly before. Like I grew up in a very um, chaotic home. Right. And there was violence in my home. My father was a beautiful man, but also an alcoholic. And, you know, little Eddie had to know within split seconds if uh, my dad was drunk or sober, was he upset or was he feeling sweet? You know, and I had to know, like, do I just like run and get in bed and pretend I'm asleep or do I like run up to the front door and give him a kiss and welcome him home? And, and that experience gave me the gift of exquisite empathy. Like I can tell in five seconds how someone's feeling, you know, and it's often I can tell before they know how they're feeling. I find words for other people's emotions when they don't have the words for them. And, and it's nothing to brag about necessarily, but it's something that I now proudly name, mm. you know, and I've kind of owned it as a gift. I didn't know to own it as a gift until uh, a college professor named it in me. He was like, you know, Edward has this incredible gift of empathy, you know, because of how he, he grew up. And I was like, oh my God, I told you about that in office hours. You're not supposed yeah. to tell the whole class that, right? But it was, it was an incredible gift for him to name my gift. So what we can, the, the gift that we can often give other people is naming that thing in them. You know, saying, I don't know if you know this, but you are like one in a million good at this. And we're at whatever that is. You know, you organize workflows better than anyone I know. You can simplify complex ideas better than anyone I know. Um, you know, you have like this funny, crazy gift for, for taglines. Like a friend of mine is like one of the best tagline people in the universe. And the good thing is he knows it and he makes a lot of money doing it. But uh, at some point he was just like, you know, the, the quirky, funny guy that all of his friends cracked up when he like named a tagline. Uh, at parties or something. I don't know if he's going around taglines of parties, but you know what I mean? It was just like this funny, quirky thing. Yeah, yeah. Certainly someone was like, wait a minute, this is like a million dollar a year job and you're wasting it. It's interesting you're bringing this up because that trait that you mentioned that you have, the downside of it is that it can manifest as a, as hypervigilance if you're not really careful, right? Because it's mm. you know the upside when it's managed well and, and when it's used well is that you are hyper, hyper em empathetic. Yeah. And, and you're so in tune with people and all of the things you mentioned. And then the downside is that if it's not managed well or if you're in a deep sense of stress, then it can be hypervigilance, which is, you know, constantly monitoring nonverbal cues or, or even totally. verbal cues. And Right, right. Or seeing into someone's soul when they don't want to be seen. <laughs> you know, like that can be like really disarming to people when they're, they're not ready for that. Mm. Just because you can feel what's going on in the room doesn't mean you have the responsibility to name it all the time, you know, like with great power come, comes great responsibility, you know, as uncle Ben said to Spider-Man and like, whatever gift you have, do you know this? Do you know this? You, you, you made a quizzical look. I didn't make, I didn't make the connection that he was called uncle Ben, like device. I think so. Anyway, please, please carry on. Anyway. So like, just because we have a gift doesn't mm. mean we need to go around hitting everyone in the world with it all the time. And I think that 
we, we, we have to be kind of discerning and smart about when we share that, right? It's like, you know, people talk a lot about radical candor. Radical candor is this idea from Kim Scott, which is we should be directly challenging with our colleagues, but we should also express care. And when you express care and challenging at the same time, you get to honesty and you get to a place where people can grow. What people do is they weaponize the challenging part and they say, radical candor here. That's a really ugly shirt you're wearing, Edward. That's not a good, that's not a great color on you. You know, <laughs> it's like, and people have like taken this idea of, oh, I have the gift of giving people great, honest feedback. So I'm just going to give feedback to everyone all the time. And like maybe, you know, feedback is inappropriate at every time. You know, if we're already out and I have an ugly shirt on, I can't change my shirt. You know, there's nothing I can do about it in the moment, you know, and like maybe give me feedback as we're walking out the door. Hey, maybe you should wear a different shirt. Oh, thanks. That's really sweet. Thank you. I didn't know this was not a flattering shirt. I'll change it. People today have taken, you know, in some cases, you know, the idea of giving feedback or like, I'm really good at telling people the truth about things and then they overuse it and they've kind of weaponized it and they're no longer discerning, look, you know, if I, if Edward can't change his shirt and you're already at a party, there's no use in telling him now because he's just going to be self-conscious about his shirt for the rest of the night. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. Is it, I could talk about this for hours because I'm, we should move on, but based on what you're saying, it feels like there's kind of two other ways for people listening to kind of uncover these zones of genius. One is what do people say to you? Because you might not notice it yourself. So what are you hearing people say? And then the second one I think is actually, I don't know if you agree with this. This is what I was saying, but that is probably also one of your biggest weaknesses. I think that's a beautiful observation. Our greatest strength overdone is often our greatest weakness. Or if unbridled, as you say, you know. Unbridled, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, in my own experience, you know, as we said, like I have this gift of empathy. I can also sense so exquisitely like little things that are going on inside people that it can like overwhelm me. You know, it's almost like, um, you know, Professor Xavier in the X-Men, he has to like wear this little helmet because he can like hear the cries of all the mutants all over the universe. You know, like I can sometimes feel too much of what's going on in the room or I can like tap into like, like these subtle things that's going on between me and a person to the point where, um, you know, it could turn into like constant processing. Exhausting, yeah. It's exhausting. So sometimes I need to just like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to deal with that right now. Like, that's not that important. So I have to be discerning about what I choose to act on. The word that's that's used sometimes, and it's come under fire a bit, but is empath, which is which describes what you're saying. Like, I am an empath, or like name oneself. Yeah. yeah. Would you ever use the word empath? I mean, it's nice to have a moniker. It's nice to, like, wear the badge, you know, like, I am an empath. But I personally don't like those um, labels for myself just because once we've labeled ourselves, we feel like we have to wear that label all the time, you know? Also, there's been a lot of memes about empaths saying like everyone who says they're an empath is like the least empathetic person you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could we could talk about that for hours too, right? There's like the like competitive spirituality, you know, there's like, 
the, the shaman leading the, uh, the sound bowl, uh, circle is like the person who like most needs therapy and, uh, and, and all the recovery work, you know, I mean, look, everyone is bringing into the world what they most need. If you think about it. Right. So like everyone who is a healer is a wounded healer. Mm. Right. I do this work because of the healing work I've done on myself. Right. And, um, and there's no reason to, to judge people for that. However, I think we all need to be aware of our, where we are in our, um, in our healing journey so that we are not assuming, you know, just because like I did ayahuasca once, oh my gosh, I did ayahuasca and I, and I talked to mama, I, uh, and now I'm going to move down to, um, Iquitos and become a shaman, you know, just because you had one healing experience doesn't make you an expert in healing. The irony is by like the spiritual experience and the spiritual journey is that you're like trying to reduce attachment and actually by collecting these badges, collecting these identities, mm-hmm. you're like, you're just, all you're doing is increasing attachment to the things. You're that you absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, um, you know, cast aspersions on anyone who's, you know, bringing healing into the world. And I think it's really beautiful and we need more healers, not less. And I think I encourage anyone who is excited and interested about being healing to just have as much self-awareness as they can about where they are in their own healing journey. Right. Cause you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself. Yeah, no, for sure. I want to move on because there's so much I want to talk to you about the book, the book Leading with Heart. So oh, thank you. Well, yeah. So it's an amazing book. Firstly, people listening should buy it. It's so needed, I think, and especially, again, considering your audience of, you know, the tech world, you know, the mm. tech world moves at such a pace. You know, there's loads of takeaways from it. But the kind of overarching one for me is just the difference between fear based culture and literally the name of the book leading with heart heart-based culture yeah but i think like in the tech world because everyone's moving so fast like it's just easy for fears to collate you know for Mm -hmm. for fear-based cultures to creep in and there's just so much to talk about on it so for anyone who hasn't read the book yet you know how would you describe um yeah the difference between a fear-based culture and a heart-based culture so the essential difference is in a fear-based culture you're normally operating in a system of high stress low trust People are treating each other rather transactionally. The conversation is often, this is what I need you to do. This is what I need to have done, as opposed to, this is what we need to do as a, as a team. What do you need to get that done? So there's often in fear-based cultures, little consideration for the individual experience. And guess what? We're all individuals. We all have our own fears. We all have our own needs. We're all motivated in different ways. And the, the basic idea is that if you have built a fear-based culture, you're going to have um, slower flows of information because people will be afraid of sharing bad news. We say in the book, if your team is afraid of telling you when they smell smoke, you'll always be putting out fires. And like a lot of the biggest problems we're experiencing in businesses were at one point small, little smoldering fires that someone noticed and didn't want to say anything about because they didn't want, you know, their boss to kill the messenger. And, you know, there's this old adage, don't bring me problems, only bring me solutions. That is so wrongheaded. I just can't emphasize enough. You know, I mean, people think that it encourages uh, individuals to be creative and to, you know, seek solutions on their own. 
But sometimes you're not going to get to the solution on your own. Sometimes it requires group thinking and, and group work, right? I don't have the resources to solve this problem. And since I don't have a solution and my boss told me not to bring in problems, I'm just not going to say anything. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it's burning the house down, right? So <clears throat> in heart-based cultures, people enjoy their work more. People feel much more loyalty to the business. There's less turnover in those businesses. There's higher flows of information. And ultimately, because of all of these factors, there's better business outcomes. There's a huge myth in Silicon Valley that, you know, it's like the despot dictator CEO who gets the most done. They're just the ones who talk the most to the PR. They're the ones who are most egoic and are like attracting attention to themselves. Um, but there's a lot of very noble, heart-led leaders, heart-based leaders who are out there building great businesses who simply aren't trying to capture headlines for themselves. And they're doing so in ways that, in ways that like people feel proud of themselves for working at this company. Like I feel so valued working at this company. I'm more loyal. I'm going to put in longer hours as opposed to my boss is going to kill me if I don't get this thing done. So I'm going to just get it done. It might be sloppy. I don't really give a shit about the result. I kind of hate this boss anyway. I'm looking for another job. Well, someone might argue listening that actually, if you're really afraid of sort of a boss and you're really afraid of getting it wrong, then you are going to put in the hours because, you know, you're, you're afraid of it not being good enough. Does that happen? Um, I think that you could make the argument, right? And, and many people do that you need to lead with just like a little bit of fear. And I think a little bit of fear in the system is good, right? You can't have zero fear. You can't have all fear. And, you know, studies have shown that there's this concept of EU fear. It's in Latin, I think the prefix EU means good. So like good fear. There's also EU stress. You know, if you imagine like a graph of, um, uh, amount of stress across the bottom and productivity on the uh, on the y-axis, right? It's actually a bell curve, meaning in the middle, like when there's just a little heat in the system and people are on their toes, but it's a good fear, right? We talk um, uh, in our business about ski time CEO. So you've heard of um, wartime CEO and peacetime CEO, right? This is like a, a concept that's been in Silicon Valley for like the last 10 or 15 years. And it's very binary. You're either in wartime or you're in peacetime. We say, what about ski time? Ski time is like that feeling and not everybody who's listening is skiing, but if you haven't skied, I encourage, encourage you to try it. But you know, that feeling of exhilaration. Exhilaration is like, I'm a little bit scared right now, but it's really fun scared, right? I'm doing the coolest, best work I've ever done in my life. I'm nervous about messing it up, but I'm enjoying the nervousness. And I'm enjoying the challenge of it. I'm in flow, right? Wartime CEO is when people are screaming at you. You're, you're totally stressed. Your um, blood uh, system is filled with cortisol, right? You're like actually to the point of breakdown. And what happens then is your prefrontal cortex actually stops firing. You're totally um, switched into fear mode and people make lots of sloppy mistakes in the, in that point. So what I'm, what we're talking about right now is you don't want what my friend, uh, my business partner, John calls the uh, happiness for lunch bunch, which is like this, like everything's easy PC, no deadlines. We'll get it done when we want. It's all chill. That creates apathy. People 
good people will leave that organization. You also don't want the other end of the spectrum where it's such high stress that people are breaking down, they're crying to their spouses, they hate their work, they're probably looking for another job. In the middle, there's just enough heat in the system to create action, to get people leaning in, to feel like that exhilaration of doing like the hardest ski run they've ever done and like giving their friends a high five at the bottom. Do you find that leaders diagnose their culture accurately? Hmm. I would say they diagnose it accurately up until a point. And then it gets to a point where there's a certain level of toxicity in the system where they're no longer aware of just how bad it is. And the problem is actually related to their unawareness. Because they think, oh, everyone loves it here, but every, they, they've entered into the zone of artificial harmony. Artificial harmony is when everyone in the C-suite is just like nodding and smiling blithely and then going back to their own offices like, I can't believe this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's when you get very low commitment and ultimately very low results. So the work we do with teams is we'll do like a confidential survey of the entire C-suite. Um, we'll interview everyone individually, we'll ask them to fill out a survey, and then we come back to the CEO with all this data. They say, this is what's actually happening. This is what your people are actually saying. And sometimes the CEO will say, I knew this. I know exactly what's going on and we need to address it. That's why I called you guys. Let's have an offsite and let's get everyone to get honest and we'll kind of have this unifying moment together. And other times we'll work with a client who said, I had no idea. Oh my God. You know, I've seen grown men and women cry looking at the, the 360 data because they're like, I am a monster. Oh my God. I had no idea. Right. And that also can create incredible transformation. So like the first thing we do with any new client, whether we're working with an individual CEO or the entire team is a 360. You know, we come in and we just want to do as much digging to get to know this client and this team from the, you know, gloves off perspective of, of their colleagues. Every so often we get sandbagged. Like I know when I'm sitting down talking to like a, a CMO or a CFO of a company and they're just like smiling and saying, I love working here. It's great. And they feel, it feels like I'm talking to like the walking wounded and like, oh my God, like it's so toxic here. You can't even tell like the outside coach what's going on. And that's really sad. And that happens every so often. The good news is when we are brought in uh, and, and I, should, I should underscore like this is like 10% of our work you know, coming in and working with like the really toxic teams. Like normally we're brought in to like work with like the top decile performers and like we just want to add rocket fuel to this company and like everything's going pretty well, but we want it to be going exquisitely well. You know, like I'm already in the Olympics, but I want to win the gold medal as opposed to holy shit, everything's falling apart. Just the fact that a client has reached out and asked for help is an indication that they can probably pull this through because there's enough awareness to ask the question. You know, it's the client that uh, comes in because my board says I need a coach and they have this like, really negative attitude about it. And like, can we just do like two or three sessions? Like, I, I don't know if I need this crap, but they, they said I've been assigned a coach. We won't even take that client, to be honest. Like, we're just like not interested. You know, like if you don't have the self-awareness, if you don't have the curiosity, if you don't have readiness, you're not going to be a great client. You know, neither. We're, no one's going to enjoy this experience. Yeah. If, um, you know, the whole of Silicon Valley or the FTSE 100 could do one thing to become people-driven leaders, what would that one thing be? Spend more time asking questions. Most leaders 
spend the majority of their time giving directives, right? And it's important. The CEO the leaders need to provide direction. They need to provide vision, but they often don't step back and ask, hey, how are you doing? How are we doing? Let's talk about how we're working together as opposed to what we're working on. Let's talk about what you need from me or from this organization to get this insane project done, right? As opposed to, I need you to work on this insane project. You know, are we having enough conversations? Are they asking questions about like, what is the dynamic in this team? You know, are we talking about our fears? Like, guess what? Building a company is really hard and we don't have to pretend that it's not hard. We don't have to pretend that we're not all scared shitless, that we're going to put five years in and end up, you know, with this company going to zero, right? Which happens sometimes, you know, how do we put it all on the table so then we can deal with it? Because the most important conversation is the conversation we're not having. So the CEO who says like, what's the thing we're not talking about? Can we just put that on the table now? Can we talk about that? Oh my God, sometimes that breathes so much fresh air into the system. Suddenly you have a team that can relax. You have a team who can, or that you have a team that can get it all out on the table because it's those conversations we're not having that gunk up the system. You know, trust is the lubrication in this engine. It's the oil in the engine. You know, a lot of these teams are like redlining already. Like they're running at such high speeds, everything's starting to break down. And if you don't have trust in the system, that engine is going to break. And what's the best way to build trust? Again, it's coming back and asking questions. It's the leader having some vulnerability. It's the leader saying, I don't have the answer for this. I need help, right? The leader who knows how to ask for help then has team members who ask for help because we need to be solving these problems together. Again, it comes back to that idea of don't bring me problems, only bring me solutions. The CEO who says, I have a problem. This is a really tough nut. I don't know how to crack it. We need to circle the wagons and I need like the the the... Uh, you know, the brain power of this entire team to figure this out. Then you'll have the CMO or the CFO or someone else say, oh, that's funny. I have a problem too that I've been noodling on. And I thought I had to figure it out on my own. There's a reason we call it a team. Like teams pass the ball, teams support each other, teams begin to finish each other's sentences when they really know each other and they trust each other. But oftentimes teams are teams in name only. Like, we all share the C-suite together, but we're not operating as a team at all because we don't know how to talk about what's hard. And that begins with the leader talking about what's hard for him or her. You mentioned before about stress as well. And I think like that's probably another interesting mm -hmm. misconception. It feels like it follows the same bell curve. What is the difference between good stress and chronic stress? Especially looking at it from like a leadership perspective. You know, how, how can you recognize whether you're like, right, I just need to get this thing done. And, you know, we're just doing a lot of hard work at the moment versus like this is actually damaging my health. The, the big question is, are there periods of rest, right? Is the stress episodic? Is it project-based? Is it situation-based? Or is it endless? Is it chronic? Like the, the definition of chronic is that it's just going on without stop, without stopping, right? So like, is the team celebrating successes? You know, do we have like a big sprint? We get this project done, we get this feature shipped. And then it's like, all right, let's celebrate. Let's have some rest together. Let's have a moment of joy together. Or is it just like, 
feature shipped, boom, next feature shipped, boom, next feature shipped. And it's just like endless months and months and months of grinding. And then people get to the end of like, oh my God, like I haven't even like, I haven't seen my kids in three months or I haven't gone to the gym in four months or I haven't had a decent meal in five months, right? So smart leaders who are like building sustainable cultures that can have like long-term, repeatable, predictable success build episodic breaks. And it's not, it's not a break like, all right, everybody, you know, we're all going to take two weeks off, you know, every month kind of thing. But it's like, let's take a day to reflect upon what was really great about the last sprint we had. And like, what did we do well that we want to repeat in this next sprint, right? Or let's even just have a team dinner. I worked with one team recently that said, we haven't had a dinner together in five years. What? What are you talking about? Come on. You know, it's not that hard to put something people can look forward to on the calendar. We're all going to go to Palm Springs for two days. It's going to be one day of work and one day of hanging out at a pool, drinking together, you know, and like a lot of CEOs think, oh no, we don't have a time. We don't even have a day to waste. Well, then you are already into this, this place of chronic stress and you're going to be breaking down the team. Every marathon runner, every Olympian has rest designed into their workout regimen. You know, a lot of great companies we work with, they mandate that everyone in the company takes vacation. So American. Well, we, we have to, yeah, because people <laughs> won't take it. So I, there's a, there's a, I don't have the, uh, the stat um, at the tip of my tongue right now, but I think it's like, I don't know, 50% of Americans don't take all of their vacation. Very American, right? Whereas like Europeans are like, I'm going to be gone for the next six weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. See you in September, right? <laughs> I heard a podcast recently that was basically saying that people having side projects isn't good for the work, that employees like not going to work as hard or they're not going to do as well. Mm. Do you see side projects as a distraction or a benefit or just a neutral thing? I see them as benefits. Uh, And I mean, if you look at the data, every Nobel Prize winner in science is also um, a quite accomplished classical musician. Something, something crazy like that, you know, like people need hobbies, they need side projects, they need side passions, because that is where we get kind of um, tangential, interesting ideas, right? If we're spending our entire life immersed in one set of problems, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the inspiration to be creative. That's why they say like the best ideas come when you're out for a walk or when you're in the shower or when you're playing an instrument, you're like, oh my God, I had an unlock about that thing somewhere else, right? You have to be outside the context to see the context and have inspiration about it. You have a question that you ask in your book, or maybe it's in your workshop, I can't remember, where you say, if you knew me, you would know. Uh And I actually want to ask you, if I knew you, what question would I ask you to get the most interesting answer? Hmm. Great question for having two minutes left to go, but um, <laughs> this is for the next for the next time I'm on your podcast. Um, I would say the question to ask me and maybe anyone um, that would really get at getting to know them is when do you feel most alive? You know, because we all feel alive in different contexts and in different places. I feel most alive sitting on a surfboard bobbing in the ocean. I feel most connected to myself, most connected to the earth, to the power of this planet 
and to what we, what they call the source, whatever the source is, is it God? Is it Gaia? Is it Mama Aya? I don't know, but I feel most connected to that when I'm sitting on a surfboard. You know, I don't even have to be catching waves. I could just be sitting there for an hour, bobbing up and down, but I feel deeply, deeply connected. And that's probably to, to bring us full circle. An, another thing that helps me be exquisitely present is because surfing is one of those things that requires just a lot of patience and a lot of presence. I'm gonna have to let you go. I'm so sad. I'm so sad too. This is so much fun. Thank you for this. Yeah, thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really enjoyed. Really enjoyed. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave it a review. I read them all. And if you want to support the show, you can head to buymeacoffee.com slash out of hours to buy me a coffee.